morning, uh, good afternoon and evening, wherever you have signed on to. My name is Sabine Lang, and I'm a professor of European politics at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies of the University of Washington in Seattle, where I also direct the Center for West European Studies, a Jean Monnet Center of Excellence. I'm really delighted to be able to welcome so many of you today or tonight from the United States and from Europe for what we think is a very timely conversation ahead of the German federal elections next Sunday on safeguarding democracies, in which we primarily want to spend the next hour assessing the role of social media and populist narratives in Germany and the United States. Before we get started, I'd like to thank those organizations and people who have really been quite central to this collaborative effort, more specifically uh, the German Consulate General in San Francisco, together with the Instituts für Auslandsbeziehungen, the Center for West European Studies at the University of Washington, and the Goethe Pop-Up in Seattle. I would like to thank in particular Elena Sims, the Deputy Consul General of the German Consulate in San Francisco. I would like to thank Arabelle Liepold, who directs the Goethe Pop-Up in Seattle with excellent support from Kendra Berry and Martin Schwarz, the CVAS staff, Phil Lyon and Susanna Haley. And of course, we're excited and curious about two outstanding experts and speakers we have with us tonight to frame this conversation. They will be introduced in a moment by Pauline Fröhlich. Pauline is director of the Future of Democracy program at Das Progressive Zentrum in Berlin, and she has very kindly agreed to moderate this event. But before Paulina takes over and introduces our speakers, I would like to express particular gratitude to our new Consul General Oliver Schramm from the German Consulate San Francisco for making this topic of safeguarding democracies one of the first events in his role as new Consul General and thereby really helping to focus our attention to the fact that democracy is nothing we should or can and will take for granted. With this, I'd like to invite Consul Schramm to provide some opening remarks. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Sabine, for your kind introduction and the Center for West European Studies for co-hosting this event. My heartfelt greetings go up north to Washington State. Uh, I would also like to thank uh, the Goethe pop-up in Seattle, Arabelle, and the Institute for Auslandsbeziehung, IFA, that was mentioned already, for making this event possible. I think today's event is, um, is uh, you said that already, is part of the lecture of series of the German government that has um, at its core to bring together high-ranking experts from politics, business, science, and culture together to exchange views on a wide array of topics and themes. And so we are really happy, and I am really happy and pleased to have Markus Beckedahl, Professor Lance Bennett, and Paulina Fröhlich at the roster in this, in this high-ranking panel. Um, yeah, maybe looking at the, taking a glance at the, at the topic, um, maybe it warrants to um, look back into the past and not too distant past. So when Facebook and Twitter became available throughout the world, that was in, in 2006. The number of internet users barely exceeded 1 billion people, which corresponded at the time to one in every six people in the world. Uh, at the time, US e-commerce sales accounted for only 5%, 5% of total US retail sales. And the iPhone had not even been announced yet. That only happened in January 2007, while Nokia dominated the market for cell phones. Today, completely different situation. 4.7 billion people, more than 60% of the population worldwide use the internet on a daily basis, and more than 4.3 billion use social media. US e-commerce has now a share of total of uh, that exceeds 20%. And Nokia 
Well, Nokia sold its smartphone business a long time ago. So big, big changes that have happened in this field, disruptive developments over just the time span of 15 years that have led to enormous advantages and progress to start on a positive note, especially with respect to how we communicate and how we collaborate, how we find information and how we educate in schools, colleges, universities. The rise of the internet and social media have also opened many doors for companies providing a fast and effective way to advertise and to sell their products and services in a fast and efficient manner, both locally and globally. And now a glance to the other side at the same time, and this is one, or if not the main topic of today's conference, the risks are mounting and have become a wide concern for societies, businesses, and governments. So to name just a few catchwords, data privacy, cybersecurity, questions of fair and equitable access to information as well as disinformation at a large scale have become major challenges today that need to be addressed. The pandemic, COVID, has exacerbated and accelerated the need for action. We have seen the wave of hate speech, fake news and disinformation that has become more aggressive than ever before. One of the main challenges and the topic of our discussion today is to reflect on the online content of social media in light of the past US elections and the upcoming general elections. The sheer volume of online content on social media platforms, which makes it difficult for users, regulators or moderators to assess all of it. The EU and Germany often are seen as regulatory superpowers they have already taken important steps to address this issue. In Germany, the latest legislation package to protect all those who are exposed to threats and insults on the internet was just passed by the German parliament, the Bundestag in May. However, as social media is and will be a vital part of people's lives, we need to continuously evaluate our strategies to strengthen democratic public spheres to enhance digital trust and promote liberal democratic values. So in this regard, I look very much forward to our distinctive guests, to their contributions and moderator discussing how this can be achieved today and how we can and have to be vigilant from day to day. So it's a great pleasure to hand the floor now to Ms. Fröhlich. Thank you all and all the best. Thank you so much, Consul General Schramm. Um, hello, dear audience. Um, thank you to the organizers for having me as a moderator tonight. Dear audience, I remember a speech given by an MP of a far-right party AFD in our government here in the Parliament of Germany. And this particular MP started his speech by greeting their YouTube community. No other party in Germany has as many followers on YouTube or Facebook as the far-right AFD party has. So they adjusted their parliamentary behavior already um, towards this fact. Some call them internet parties, therefore, because followers on social media seem more important to them than actual members of the party. Between 2017 and 2020, I woke up countless times by my radio alarm clock telling me that President Donald Trump announced on Twitter to cancel some international treaty or that he thinks someone is particularly stupid. Until that day, until the day that Twitter banned Donald Trump, the platform served him as a powerful tool not only to spread the word, but also to trigger harmful actions. Today in this online session, we will talk about the populist narratives that exist and their relation to social media we will also talk about what we as democratic citizens should learn in order to safeguard our democracy. Before we start, I'd like to tell you something which is about um, the Q&As, which, um, which gives you the way to participate in this session. So on the bottom right corner of the Zoom window, you should find a button called Q&A, or for the ones in Germany and having Zoom window in German, it's called F&A. 
So if you click this button, there will be a chat window that opens and you're most welcome to drop your questions here and we will integrate them later in our discussion. Dear audience, um, when I was 11 years old, my family had no computer nor a mobile phone and I basically had no clue about the internet. At the very same time in 2002, Markus Beckendahl already blocked about the net politics in our country. Since 2004, he is editor-in-chief of the platform netspolitik.org, which is the hub for expertise and advocacy for digital freedom rights in Germany. From 2010 to 2013, he was also a member of the Enquete Commission, Internet and Digital Society in the German Bundestag. And we will hear a short impulse by Markus Beckendahl now. Markus, the floor is yours. Hello, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. Um, I Current disinformation strategies in the German election campaign are very much based uh, on US models. So we have the same issues and challenges. And what are the big topics of disinformation in this uh, election campaign? First, we have the great vaccination conspiracy. It's popular from the radical left to the radical right wings. It's a huge problem. Around 20% of the population don't get vaccinated because of disinformation and mistrust in uh, institutions. And we won't get close to a herd Im immunity, which is a problem for the upcoming winter in Germany. We have a uh, second, we have the evergreen, the great reset. It has something to do to, uh, with the vaccination conspiracy. Um, we have also um, the usually right-wing conspiracy theories um, that uh, our population will be changed by migrants and uh, people who seek for asylum in Germany. Currently, we see the steal the vote campaign coming to Germany. Um, it's uh, getting bigger in the right-wing uh, environment and it's supported even by the Springer media and doubts about the postal votes are raised uh, and also they are preparing for the um, narrative why the, uh, why the conservatives will probably fail next Sunday in the German election. And in addition, there's a large portion of Misunguni um, hate uh, against women um, and uh, there's much hatred and digital violence against female voices that take a more progressive stance in public. This is increasingly becoming a democracy problem as female voices withdraw from discourse because they are inundated with hate and threats. And one problem is that bigger media often magnify or legitimize disinformation online for economic and ideological reasons. In recent years, a huge ecosystem of uh, online media has developed on the right following the strategy of Breitbart. This ensures that likewise rather right-wing larger media such as the newspaper Die Welt and the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, the NZZ, play to the same target groups and adapt and further spin narratives, which is a huge, huge problem. And with Bill TV, the Springer Publishing House is currently copying Fox TV somewhat. Uh, with all the negative aspects and uh, effects on an increasingly polarized public debate. Of the parties, as uh, Paulina mentioned, um, the very right-wing populist party AfD is a frontrunner, both in the dis distribution of disinformation and in the platform content shared. And disinformation is not just an online problem. We have huge poster campaigns by AfD-affiliated organizations with uh, dubious funding especially against the Greens. And the Initiative Neue Soziale Marktwirtschaft, one of the largest industry lobby organizations, launched a huge media advertisement campaign against the Greens and the frontrunner Annalena Baerbock using false and misleading elements and anti-Semitic codes. These were the actors, but the big platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok have a huge responsibility too. There's a long history of ignoring extremist developments on its own commercial platforms, half-heartedly counteracting them and always giving the benefit uh, of the doubt to its own business rather than the good of society. The mechanisms of algorithm decision-making and recommendation systems favored hate and disinformation, everything with emotions. These mechanisms can be played 
and the actors of disinformation now very well how to play this. Facebook and YouTube have a long history in knowing this, and the business decisions were usually not for the good of the public. Unfortunately, we have the situation in which the politicians responsible for this themselves benefit from the regulatory circumstances, and they sometimes have no interest in changing anything like preventing micro-targeting on platforms like Instagram, where they are now paying a lot of money in the elections campaigns to uh, use the advertisement systems. Later, I will get deeper into what the next government should do. Thank you for your yeah, the time. Thank you, Marcos. I have difficulties to start my video, but I assume you hear me already. So I will keep talking and see if my video pops up any minute. There it is. Marcos, thank you so much for mentioning um, such specific examples of disinformation on and offline already in the German context, and also for talking about the mechanisms that make it work. We will come back to some of the aspects you mentioned later in the debate again. I would like to introduce to you Lance Bennett, a Meteor's Professor of Political Science and Communication. He is a Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Journalism, Media and Democracy. He is author of the book Communicating the Future, um, which was published in last December, if I'm not mistaken, Lance. Um, right, and Lance was also a keynote speaker, and I would like to mention that at our inocracy conference in 2017. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to hear, but also learn from you again, Lance. So the floor is yours, William Pultz. Thank you very much, Paulina. It's nice to see you again, even if virtually. And thanks for the comments, Marcus. Uh, there are indeed many similarities between uh, the rise of the radical right in Germany and the US and indeed in many uh, democracies around the world. I'm gonna start with a few comments about the US, uh, but finish with uh, what I hope is an opening to uh, comparing other democratic systems and the threats from disinformation. Um, like many democracies, the US struggles with disinformation, which uh, I can define as the active promotion of untruths to disrupt society, to amplify social divisions, and to justify attacks on democratic institutions. While social media helped to spread these kinds of disinformation, there are many elements required to make it so disruptive. And those elements include political organizations, extremist groups, political news formats uh, that produce it, and the elected officials who validate and send that disinformation into the mainstream news. The latest big lie that we are still struggling with since uh, last year's election is that Donald Trump actually won that election, and more generally that there is widespread voter fraud in all levels of our electoral system. In addition to feeding Donald Trump's ego, this lie has provided a rationale for voter suppression laws in many states. Those laws are aimed at making it difficult for many Democratic supporters to vote, Democratic Party supporters to vote, particularly Blacks and minorities. Voter suppression in the US is not new. The constitutional protections that were written after the Civil War uh, were quickly terminated. It took 100 years until the 1960s for a new set of laws uh, to be passed to protect civil and voting rights but the Republican Party quickly began to uh, erode those laws for a simple reason. Like many conservative parties around the world, their pro-business and social austerity policies are not very popular with average citizens. So what we, we are looking at is a party that had been on track to undermine the election process, but it has rapidly sped up with the election of Donald Trump. So whereas the old Republican coalition of pro-business groups, Christian fundamentalists, anti-abortion movement, uh, and gun rights organizations uh, was enough to possibly create minority rule if election laws were changed just in the right ways, um, the party has seen an influx of extremists in the last decade. 
The first wave of these extremists began with the Tea Party movement following the global financial crisis, and the Tea Party brought in an agenda of even more severe cuts to government and the promotion of white nationalism. Since then, other extremist elements have entered the party, such as armed militias, neo-Nazis, QAnon conspiracy networks, and on and on. These groups have been brought into the party, not just by Donald Trump, who was, uh, if not a genius in many things, uh, pretty good at figuring out social media communication strategies, but he also had help from the Mercer and the DeVos families, Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, and Fox News, among other propaganda sites. Not surprisingly, those extremist voters have elected like-minded representatives, and those uh, pressures on elected representatives have either pushed out or silenced many centrist party leaders. As a result, few Republicans are now willing to challenge overtly anti-democratic activities, such as the invasion of the US Capitol on January 6th of this year. So there is growing support for authoritarian rule, for crony capitalism, white nationalism, uh, and, and this kind of development has appeared in several European Union nations, such as Hungary and Poland, and many uh, democratic nations in the EU struggle to contain radical right parties, such as the Sweden Democrats or the alternative for Deutschland in Germany. So looking in particular at the United States, but, but we can take some lessons from other countries, I think, I will finish with a set of uh, remarks about what can be done. First of all, it seems to me that, that there must be an effort on the part of center left and center right parties to find their identities again so that they may appeal to voters. Uh, the inability of these parties to take positions that attract voter enthusiasm is a growing uh, problem for traditional parties in many nations. Since Trump, the good news is that the Democrats in the US have rallied around progressive policies um, with Biden taking the lead. Um, but we will see if a divided government can pass those policies in ways that, that mobilize voters. Second thing that we can do is strengthen constitutional protections for citizen rights, much as Germany did after World War II. This is much more challenging in the US as the Supreme Court has now been filled with right-wing judges who have overturned voter rights and citizen rights protections in recent years. Third measure that we can think about is for journalists. Um, to try to be less dependent on parties and elected officials to tell the stories in the news, particularly stories about threats to democracy. In recent years, there has been greater journalistic independence on topics such as climate change, and I think it's time for that to happen with stories about threats to democracy. And finally, I will suggest, as Marcus uh, mentioned a moment ago, that social media companies need to be regulated. And there's a whole list of things that can be done there that perhaps we can talk about more in the Q and A. Um, but, but one of the things that I would recommend in particular is to change the parts of their business model that support the, the viral spread of dangerous political content. We know that right-wing extremist content spreads more widely than centrist or, or leftist political content. And we also know that algorithms on platforms are designed to spread such content to generate profits. Now, I don't have any objection to those algorithms kicking in to spread cat videos around the world uh, at high levels, but I do object to spreading political content in similar fashion. So I think that we could shut off those algorithms when it comes to political content. So with those opening remarks, I will send it back to you, Paulina. Thank you, Lance. Thank you so much. Um, we will definitely take uh, some time later on to come back to this rich li list of yours about what can be done, because this is um, so important for us to, to um, look future oriented about these questions. But before we do that, I would like to ask the two of you a couple of more questions to understand more about the connection between disinformation, uh, populist narratives, and uh, the environment of um, social media. So, um, Marcus, you were mentioning, or you were giving this one example of the disinformation around vaccination um, before. And I was wondering, not every disinformation must be a populist narrative, and not every populist narrative must be a disinformation. How is your, how is, what is your view about the disinformation on vaccination? Are those 
populist narratives or what do they have to do with that in this regard in Germany? I think they are very populist narratives because um, um, uh, most of the people have a deep mistrust in institutions and uh, sometimes they also have not the best education. Uh, so the combination of mistrust in institution and not being able to understand how, how science works and also the whole communication during the pandemic where everything changed a lot within weeks uh, and um, the, uh, losing control about everything. This led to, um, to the situation that a lot of people um, yeah, believe now in populist uh, anti-vaccination narratives. Uh, they believe in conspiracy theories because it's easier for them to understand the losing of control in this pandemic. Was that the same case in the US, Lens, about the vaccination information? Yeah, I think uh, Marcus has identified many of the key issues that, that help spread the anti-vaccination uh, stories in the US, uh, but I, I would add one more and we can talk about whether this is true in, in, in Germany as well. And, and what I would add to that is that the uh, decisions to not get vaccinated now are expressed in terms of personal freedom. So that there has been a rapid transformation of what freedom means in a democratic society. And you know, it, it wasn't very long ago that we define freedom as the right to do whatever does not endanger others. Um, and some things that you, you shouldn't do to endanger yourself as well, of course. But, but now uh, there seems to be very little concern about others and it's all about the individual. And, and so that the anti-vaccination uh, networks are often feeding from elected officials, the, the governors of states like Florida and Texas who are saying that it should be the individual's responsibility to decide about public health. And that's true freedom. Marcus, you were mentioning before education um, and the question how educated someone is, if I got you correctly. So I was wondering if this is, this is actually, um, is this like a thing that matters for the recipes to be open for this information or not? Or hasn't maybe even COVID shown us that education doesn't matter that much when it comes to believing disinformation or not. So which addressees are particularly receptive to popular narratives or to disinformation? Does it have to do with uh, education? And if yes, on what level? Yeah, it's, it's very complex because you can't really say uh, only uneducated people are against vaccination. There are a lot of academics who believe that, uh, as Lance mentioned, for their uh, freedom, they are against being vaccinated and they don't want to give uh, control to the government or the society to decide uh, whether they get vaccinated or not. But I think one of our biggest challenges is that uh, most of our society have a lack of digital um, media literacy. Nobody um, educated us on digital media literacy. Maybe some parts of uh, our society learned at school that you can trust a newspaper or the Tagesschau in the evening. But now they all have uh, smartphones. They have a TV and radio station built into their smartphones. Uh, they uh, receive every kind of information. And this is a huge challenge. How do we get people trained that not every uh, um, source is uh, trustworthy, that they uh, need to think as, uh, as they are journalists. Um, journalists are getting trained normally three years to understand how um, they have to check sources. Now every one of us is in a position like a journalist, we are um, uh, net. Uh, we are nodes in a network uh, on platforms like uh, Facebook, and we have the responsibility. But nobody trained us in doing this. Uh, in yeah, um, in being in such a position, so we need huge programs um, to educate everyone who is willing to uh, being 
educated. So uh, my hope is if we educate more people with digital liter uh, media literacy, we have a bit less problems than we do have now where everybody believes everything being sent on WhatsApp by everyone. I myself would enjoy such a course, by the way, but Lance, um, would a higher um, educational media literacy have helped the people who fell for the voter fraud narrative you mentioned earlier? I, I don't know if it would. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, a lot of educational reforms could be useful today. Certainly digital media uh, education is important critical thinking skills, analytical thinking skills, which have been really toned down in, in many, many local schools around the country, which emphasize simple, uh, basic employment skills um, without giving people sort of a life context in which to practice uh, other uh, benefits of education. But I, I do think that um, there's a big fight in the US right now over uh, such things as critical race theory, which uh, you can, make it a very simple idea by saying that critical race theory invites people to consider that uh, the racism has been baked into the history of the United States and it is in the institutions and the everyday life of, of the United States and its culture and that we need to make people more sensitive to, to these kinds of problems. Um, Donald Trump uh, and many school districts around the country, states have now outlawed, North Carolina and other states have outlawed the teaching of critical race theory. So, so I do think that the educational system in the US could, could be greatly improved, but it's often controlled locally by the very people who would resist Marcus's ideas or, or mine for that matter. If we don't like look at schools and education, but um, back on social media and whether people consume those information, um, I, I wonder if you would argue that the follower base of populists or those spreading disinformation is either technically or maybe emotionally unreasonable to others, as they have found messengers and platforms to exchange their views away from public channels so that they're out of reach for liberal politicians. So I'll try to pinpoint it again. Has this follower base technically or emotionally been unreasonable now to liberals? Yeah, um, I think we have to accept this and maybe we will find solutions in the future, but uh, I'm not sure how to get into a dialogue with these 10, 15% who are building their own reality on Telegram and YouTube and don't believe anything else uh, than in their channels. It's um, from the outside, uh, it's totally bizarre that there are people who trust every vlogger on YouTube and every Telegram channel, but not uh, the official uh, big uh, TV uh, news uh, Tagesschau or something like this. So I have no clue how to deal with them, but we have to fight for um, every uh, or the other um, 85, 90% in our society that they don't get into the Kaninchenloch, the rabbit hole uh, of conspiracy theories and uh, the populist narratives. Before Lance, before you come in, um, Marcus, I have a, a question on that. Um, you said we lost them emotionally and technically, right? You were talking about chat rooms where they gather. What happened first? I'm not sure. Maybe uh, first uh, emotionally we lost them and then technically. Okay. Lance, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, to follow up on what Marcos just said, I, I do think that uh, the, the, the foundation of a lot of disinformation and the sharing of it and the uh, celebration of it uh, is, is an identity process. And, and it's very hard for liberals to reach people who are uh, racist, anti-immigrant, uh, patriarchal, anti-feminist, anti-gay, I mean, this is the agenda, and this agenda is appearing in radical right parties in so many democracies today, larger in the US, smaller in Germany, but still it's much the same agenda. 
So this is an emotional identity issue. And, and I don't think disinformation is so much believed, which is why education may have some lim limited uh, effect on it. I think it's an affirmation of common membership in movements that allows people to signal to each other that we're together. The crazier the conspiracy, the more commitment is required to believe it. And it's really, as I say, it's not so much a belief, it's are you willing to say this in public? Are you willing to share it on your Facebook page? Uh, and, and when you are, that suggests you're committed to the movements, this whole spectrum of movements that is adding up to an attack on democracy. Now, if we try to look upon possible counter strategies um, to this, what are the promising approaches the two of you see in Germany and in the US um, that try to limit the spread of either fake news or also hate speech and this, uh, those thoughts Lance has just um, described? Who of you would like to come first? We would like to learn a little yeah. bit about the approaches that exist. Um, well, I can say a few things about that. Yeah. It seems to me that that um, more creative regulation. I mean, I mean, yes, the, the social media platforms have presented all kinds of challenges and disruptions to society, from privacy uh, to the spread of hate speech. But to try and regulate all of those things separately becomes an impossible challenge. And it's not clear even how you can generate the rules uh, to do it, much less the regulatory bodies that would have the authority to do it. Um, but I do think that there are some simple cut to the chase uh, kinds of solutions, one of which is to simply say, turn off your business algorithms when it comes to politics. Um, and, and uh, separate politics from the business side. I mean, there's plenty of other problems with the business side that, that we could go on and on about, um, but, but to really make a, a firewall and, and to limit the political um, content spread on social media platforms. So that would be one of them. Um, I mean, at some point, I think that regulators need to talk about the business model. I mean, one of the limitations of some of the EU policies is to try and regulate US social media companies to make space for more European media companies to, to develop. And while you can understand that in terms of economic growth considerations, why that is uh, a value in Europe, that doesn't solve the problem of, of what to do about businesses that are disrupting society, causing environmental stress, because these are at the, the, the base of them, promoting greater levels of consumerism in a planet that's already in shock. Um, so there's a whole set of things that, that I think require us to look at the business models of these companies uh, and not just regulate around the edges. Yeah, it's a complex debate. I could talk for hours about how to regulate um, the platforms. Um, first, I think we need more counseling centers for victims of digital violence, which is very important because a lot of victims are being left alone. Uh, many police departments still do not take the issues seriously. Um, we have to help everyone who gets a victim uh, in this hate um, campaigns. Then when it comes to regulation, the easy goal, which is necessary is uh, we, we need a clear restriction on behavior-based advertisement in general, and especially in the political sphere. It's a bit absurd that uh, political advertisement in television and radio are strongly regulated in Germany. It's close to forbidden to do political advertisement in tel on television or radio, but online is close to unregulated. At the very least, we should have a ban on micro-targeting advertisement for political purposes. And in my opinion, that would do more for democracy because the social risks are likely to be greater than the benefits. Then we need more transparency in archives for political advertisement. Um, the archives, uh, YouTube and Facebook are now providing, they are a bit of transparency theater. It could be much better. And we need better data access for regulators and independent science also to balance the power asymmetry 
Acer metrics that internal research departments at Facebook and Google now everything much better and can better assess impacts of design and tech decisions while publics try to understand that. And we have no clue what really happens um, uh, yeah, in the machine rooms of uh, Facebook and co. This is a huge problem we um, yeah, have to solve. And we need a strengthening of independent journalism. Media increasingly suffer from lack of nonprofit journalism. In Germany, modeling or chefs are nonprofit and tax reduced, but journalism isn't. So it would be a quick win for the next government to change that and get journalism gemeinnützig, nonprofit, tax reduced. Thank you. What a brilliant list. I hope the audience has a pen and a paper or that might be old fashioned, a computer and wrote down all of those things. This was a strong uh, list. Lance, I'm sure you want to add a, a couple of points, but if I may, I would like to um, phrase the question a little bit differently and ask you, imagine you can choose one White House secretary and you have three to five minutes with this person um, to advise this person regarding safeguarding democracy, focusing on the problem of disinformation. Who would you choose to advise and what would be your key points for this person? Well, that's a great question. Um, it makes me think about what happened in the US after 9-11. Um, a number of intelligence agencies which had not been communicating very well were put together in a giant department of Homeland Security, which now has a kind of a big brother potential uh, to it. Um, but I would uh, go to the other end of, of that scary scenario and say that we have an equally dangerous threat to democracy today in the United States and that we need a, a department of uh, democratic security or democratic protection. So I would put uh, someone like Elizabeth Warren in charge of that who's a lawyer and a consumer advocate and has a very well-developed uh, legal and sort of, of citizen uh, attitudes, uh, ideas about uh, how democracies could work and how they're threatened. And I would bring a number of programs into that department of uh, the Federal Election Commission, uh, or at least connect them to that department, the Federal Communications Commission, and um, really, empower someone like Elizabeth Warren to uh, not take advice from me, but to uh, give me the advice because I think she would be perfectly happy to do it. The problem is that uh, many years ago, I gave a talk to the International uh, Association of Campaign Consultants and uh, it was a very strange experience and but it was an international gathering of people who were managing political campaigns all over the world. And my talk was in the second day. And the first day, I heard not one mention of the word democracy. So I got up and I, I asked them, you know, I, I didn't hear anyone mention democracy in the whole first day of all of the interesting talks that were delivered. And, and one of the uh, oldest sort of elder statesmen in this uh, association raised his hand, stood up and said, why would you think we have any interest in democracy? Our job is to get people elected to office, period. So, so nobody is looking out for democracy and I, I think it's time we change that. What a powerful anecdote. Yeah, thank you, Lance, for, for sharing that. Um, dear speakers, we have a question from our audience which I would like to bring in. And it is a question which circles a bit back um, to that moment when we talked about schools and media literacy. I'm going to read out the question to you. How can teachers, maybe especially in Germany, assist in digital media literacy? Should that become part of the curriculum and teacher education? If so, starting at what grade? Any ideas on what should consist of it? Thanks a lot. So maybe the two of you. At what time should media literacy start? Is that something for the kindergarten or is that something for way later? Um, is that only something for the children or something for the teachers? And what modules could it actually consist of? Yeah, shall I start? I think we have to start in the kindergarten. And uh, it's not only a thing uh, for the kindergarten. Media, digital media literacy is something you have to 
get trained your whole life because everything is changing so fast. Uh, 10 years ago, uh, most of um, the people don't, uh, didn't use WhatsApp. Um, they didn't have smartphones. Now they have a TV sender in their hands and uh, nobody told them the responsibility. And if you take a look where in which age um, children get into the internet, and uh, have uh, access to tablets, uh, then it's uh, in Germany normal with 10 or less. So uh, we have to start at the kindergarten and then in the ground school, it's Grundschulen. And the biggest challenge is to get um, teachers trained. Uh, it's a huge problem that it's still not really in the curriculums because uh, reform of cur curriculums is so complex and takes so uh, long that uh, we uh, have a lot of young teachers starting with no really uh, uh, big clue except their own personal experience uh, what uh, how to train uh, digital media literacy. And we have all the older teachers who are sometimes clueless and are not really uh, willing to learn uh, all the digital stuff because they don't like digital stuff. And in the past, the debate in Germany was a bit uh, um, boring because everything around digital media literacy was concentrated in, oh, we have to go to the schools and we have to get uh, the young people trained. I think the biggest challenge is to get older people get trained because they don't, normally don't go to school anymore, except they are uh, picking up their grandchildren or their children's. But how do we reach out to them? Uh, and how do we get these uh, big parts of our society, the 90% who will never go to school again, um, how do we reach out to them? With uh, I think we need a lot of programs um, for the different backgrounds, uh, different technical backgrounds, different other backgrounds. And uh, sometimes uh, we need to go to um, archives or bibliotheques or churches uh, to reach out for people in the analog world. Sometimes uh, it makes sense to have online programs, but um, we shouldn't concentrate these not only on school, school children, but on everyone. Vance, do you agree? Yeah, I, I think it is a, a lifelong process, beginning with uh, young kids. I mean, before kids are able to really think, they've been exposed to all kinds of consumer messages and, and messages that, that are widely circulating on social media as well. Um, and they have very little resistance to it, so it becomes the normal. Um, but, but research over the last 10 years or so has suggested that there are a lot of social harms. I mean, as Marcus said a, a few minutes ago, people are victims of, of hate and shaming and uh, all kinds of, 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 of emotional and then physical violence. I mean, this spills over. One of the things we also know about social media is that, uh, well, as Trump's insurrection in January suggested, I mean, there was a lot of activity on social media that ended up with people invading the US Capitol. So, so the line between the virtual and uh, the, the physical is, is a very uh, blurry line indeed. But I, I also think that um, government can begin to step in. You know, we have uh, public health and public interest education in public life. So governments tell us uh, to wear seatbelts, uh, to try to get vaccinated, even though uh, many people are not doing that, uh, that cigarettes can, can be uh, hazardous to our health. Um, and we have a whole list of hazards that social media are creating. And it might be good to put those out there in the public world and where people together can see and experience these kinds of warnings and concerns. And it doesn't have to be boring and terrible. Um, it, it can be fun and interesting and uh, animated and uh, in, interactive. So I, I think that, that there's a lot of education outside of classrooms that could uh, take place in this area. Thank you, Chu. There's another question I would like to bring in. Um, it's about the US and the vaccination campaign. I'm gonna read it out to you. Why do the panelists think that vaccine skepticism and conspiracies are still so prevalent in the states that are suffering most from COVID? These attitudes seem self-defeating. 
Lance, maybe you want to start on that. Again, it's not about reason. It's about extreme emotion. Um, I mean, if, if the world were logical, it would work the way we would like it to work. Um, and it's, it's clearly not. Um, I, I think that there's a celebration of freedom that, uh, you know, this summer, once again, three or 400,000 motorcyclists from the, the, around the country showed up in a little town in South Dakota. And then they went back out and spread uh, COVID uh, in their own hometowns where they came from. Um, it's a celebration of freedom. Um, and, and as long as that's what it is, and it's a sign of membership in movements. And if that's the level, uh, more information, more reason is not going to change how people emotionally understand their choices. I would like to take the chance um, and ask the two of you for tips and hints you've got um, for the audience on an individual level. So let's say, what hints do you have for people like me who are following online discourses, who every now and then run across disinformation, who maybe have people in their families or circle of friends who every now and then try, like fall for some populist narrative, et cetera. Um, what are your hints for, for, on an individual level for people on how to deal with disinformation and populist narratives in social media or maybe even in own families. That's very hard. Um, as uh, Lance uh, mentioned, it's about emotions. So uh, it's very hard to talk to uh, your mother or father with a, yeah, with a good argumentation if they believe in something and uh, there's no logical argumentation reaching out um, to them. Um, I think we still should take care about them. Sometimes um, I, I have uh, some examples uh, where people didn't uh, or lost the whole connection to relatives. This is a huge problem, but sometimes we still can reach out to them and try to hold their hands and try to argue emotionally or let them explain and try to find out why they believe in the most absurd things. There's always a reason for that and we have to find that and to get them or try to get them out of the uh, rabbit hole again. Yeah, I guess that I would recommend to people to take a break from the news from time to time. The news can be very disturbing. I mean, the world is falling apart, uh, according to most journalists or most big news organizations. And maybe that's true, but that doesn't mean that we have to fall apart along with it. Um, and so I, I think that, that finding a way to process the right amount of news about the right topics for each of us uh, becomes very important and, and to not become obsessed with it. Um, I mean, I, you can become obsessed with the latest uh, updates on COVID until the point that you don't want to walk out your front door anymore. Um, and, and I don't think that that's a particularly healthy uh, thing to do. So I, I think taking care of yourself um, emotionally around the state of the world that we live in is, is an important first step. Um, I think finding community at the local level that you can participate in, whether it's farmers markets or whether it's social groups that are doing interesting things, uh, whether it's environmental activists, Fridays for Future, these are all very productive and positive uh, activities for people of, of different ages to engage with. And, and they, they are both um, affirming and positive and they're often doing good things. And, and then I think as citizens, we also can uh, review the, the state of our uh, democracies wherever we live. Um, most democracies today have a, 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 an emptiness in the center of the political party system. I mean, in Germany, there's an election right now. And uh, when I watch TV news, I'm hearing voters say, oh, blah, 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 blah. And, and we, we see that the, the Greens are willing to form a coalition with uh, 
maybe the Christian Democrats uh, and, and, and the social Democrats appear to be willing to form coalitions with lots of other people, although probably not with the CDU at the moment for uh, personal reasons. But, but the question is, what do these parties stand for anymore? And if, if I look at the left politically, I see that the left has really kind of left, so to speak, the political party system. They've, many leftists today have given up on parties as being meaningful ways to represent their interests. Um, the culture of politics on the left has changed into a, a culture of diversity and inclusiveness and direct democracy. And all of that's fine, but it doesn't channel back into decision-making uh, and political party power. So I think that we as citizens need to think about ways to reinvent political parties so that they actually represent majorities of people uh, who can agree on lots of things, a safer environment for the future, a better economy that pays living wages to most people, uh, good education for children, health care for all, uh, decent living standards and housing. I mean, those are popular issues, but political parties no longer embrace them the way they might have once done. Yeah, you just touched upon something that has been a great debate here in Germany as well. Um, Markus and Lenz, we are running out of time, but there are two more questions which I would like to um, give to you, and I would like to ask you to answer them as sharp as possible. Um, I think the audience will be thankful that, that we spend some time on their questions and um, turn back to that. So there's one which goes rather to you, Markus, I believe. I'm going to read it out, and then I'm going to read the other question which goes rather to Lenz, okay? At Mozilla Foundation, we have been tracking platform policies regarding election rules on social media and found that they apply much softer rules to Germany now than to the US election last year. Do you think this is appropriate and why could that be? This is going to be a question to you, Marcus. I'm going to read out the second question, which goes to Lance. Do the experts here believe that there are Malin state actors behind distribution of misinformation that we are discussing? Or is it simply politicians looking for personal gain and learning how to game the social network systems? Markus, do you want to start? Yeah, with to answer that? it, I think it's not appropriate. Um, I think platforms are doing not enough in this election campaign in Germany to fight disinformation, and um, so there's a we have to regulate them. Good stop. Short and sweet. Thank you. Lance. I think there's a lot of sources of disinformation. You know, media companies produce it because it draws audiences. Um, politicians uh, produce it because it, it draws votes and gets them power. Um, states are in the game, but often, you know, there's been a lot of talk in Europe in particular and the US in the 2016 election about Russian disinformation. But most of the Russian disinformation, and there was plenty of it, um, is actually attacking already existing social divisions. And so I think we need to work on those existing social divisions, and then the disinformation will not be so uh, important. Thank you, Lance Bennett. Thank you, Markus Beckendahl. It was very instructive, and I learned a lot. I hope the audience did too. And I'm happy now to circle back to Sabina Lang and thank you very much for your insights and participation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much to all three of you, to Lance and Marcus for giving us somber, informative, forward-looking, um, some very direct and some um, rather um, what we call in German gesamtgesellschaftlich. So, um, encompassing all of society ways to um, address uh, problems of uh, disinformation in social media and populism. I, I really appreciated um, your input. Uh, Paulina, thanks a lot for making this such a lively and, and interesting conversation among you. We could go on for some hours. Uh, I think all of you feel like you've said just a few things of the many, many aspects that you wanted to address. Um, so um, I think we will ask the consulate to maybe continue this conversation in some other format uh, over this coming year. Um, 
Before we let you go, I would like to uh, point you towards a event uh, also organized by the Center for West European Studies and co-sponsored by the Goethe Institute and uh, the Germanics Department at UW. We will analyze on October 5th, the week after the German elections, where we stand in Germany. Um, you should see the link to this event in the chat. Uh, we will do that with a number of experts. Even though we won't know who will govern Germany, I think we can have an informed conversation that week already where this country is heading. So for now, thanks again to the consulate. Thanks very much to Arabelle and the Goethe Pop-Up and all of you for being here. And I wish you a happy midday or evening, wherever you are. Goodbye.